think globally, but act locally. We need to start putting some of that stuff back locally. Otherwise, we don't pass on anything great to our future generations. Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the World with Ben Goldsmith. I'm a rewilding enthusiast and activist from Britain. This time, I'm speaking to David Balhari from the John Muir Trust, an organization which is at the forefront of efforts to restore one of the most degraded, as well as dramatic and beautiful landscapes in Europe, the Highlands of Scotland. David, how did you get to this? Tell me a little bit about your backstory and how you came to be involved with rewilding. So briefly, I was born in a place called Kinlochew, which is in the West Highlands, in the sort of uh, the spectacular scenery of on one side you've got Sleek, on the other side Benny, at the head of Loch Marie. Moved from there to a place called Newtonmore in Bainduck and Susbay. And then from there migrated across to the east coast of Scotland to a place called Afford, where I went to, did my university and so on. And the farthest south I've ever managed to get was of a brief period I lived in Edinburgh. But I've always felt there's a sort of a, a very strong rubber band pulling me back to the islands, which I think is, as we'll discuss later on, I think that living in the place that you seek to influence is hugely important in terms of how you understand the, the social geography. And how did you get into nature conservation as a profession? And what was the career progression? Yeah, so my father, went, that was where we were in uh, Kinlochew. So he was the, the warden at the Benny National Nature Reserve. As part of that job, he kept lots of wildlife. Or he had lots of wildlife. He had a raven, he had a golden eagle, he had pine martens. So I was brought up in close proximity, but from a sort of a, a naturalist's perspective. And there was always a bit of a mystique as to the actual secret lives of those animals in any sort of technical understanding. So I worked out that if I went to university I could actually spend three to four years of my life doing nothing else but studying pine martens. So I managed to wangle that after a bit of effort and uh, took it from there. And so where was your first big conservation job? So that was working at a time for, it was a predecessor of um, what's called Nature Scott Today, which was the Nature Conservancy Council. So at the time, Nature Conservancy Council was a UK body, and it then split into being Nature Conservancy Council for Scotland. And that's when I joined it, and joined it primarily to do work on on the genetic integrity of wildcats and and what the conservation future was and how best to manage that problem. And and we, of course, met each other when you joined Rewilding Britain, and you spent a number of years there working on the whole rewilding agenda in the Highlands before becoming chief executive of the John Muir Trust. And people will have heard of John Muir, the legendary conservationist who had a huge impact across the Atlantic in America. I mean, perhaps you could just give a little bit on the background of John Muir Trust and, and, and how it came to be and, and how you came to be there. So I think in terms of, first of all, the rewilding word, I, I like many people would have done, um, read George Mombay's book, Fatal and was taken by this this new organisation that was sort of pushing the margins in terms of the need for looking at some of these, you call them nature conservation issues, protection of nature, but at a global scale, and asking some of the very challenging questions that we, we all need to address. So applied for the job, working with them, them being rewilding Britain, really enjoyed it. Did that for two years, but it was on a secondment from the sort of the policy side of Scottish government. And uh, they only allowed their, or only allowed that secondment to run for two years. So I was sort of brought back into the core of government for a while. And then the job with the John Muir Trust came up and uh, it was the third time I'd applied for it. 
and on the previous two times I'd been uh, given the feedback that I was potentially just somebody that wanted too much change and that the organisation maybe wasn't ready for that level of change. So on the third time of applying, you know, I just asked gently is that you know, there is no point in reapplying for a job if the organisation isn't in a in a space that actually wants to, to change. So I was reassured that they were up for that and they had a board that would be supportive of those arguments and joined them. And um, it's been very good for the last three years. So before we talk about what the what the mission of the organisation is, let's just step back and talk a little bit about the Highlands. It's, it's an area of Britain which is pretty sparsely populated. Um, population density has actually decreased substantially over the last two, three hundred years. And the, the the wildlife and the natural integrity of that landscape is much more depleted than people would think. I mean, all our Instagram feeds are full of people from from our groups of friends that go up there and spend their holidays there. And they, they can see a long way and, and they've got very poor mobile reception. So they think it must be wild. It must be natural. The reality is it's it's a pretty depleted place. Would, would you agree with that? I think one of the difficulties about speaking, so first of all, when you speak to the Northwest Highlands, you're speaking about a place that's very close to my heart. And it's not just a, a visual landscape. It's a landscape that's full of people. And it's it's full of people with a cultural history that's very deep, that lots of things have happened to. And I think in any sense of, of a sort of a snapshot observation of what we see today, there needs to be an understanding of what's gone on before and how we how we got there. And, you know, it's kind of curious in some ways that before I joined the John Muir Trust, I was working on rural policy for Scottish government. And the policies of the past have done a, a lot of damage. So, you know, if you take some of the worst excesses, whether it was the scheduled tax relief of the flow country and the, and the planting of um, deep peat, or whether it was just on the headage payments for sheep, those two things alone just created economic incentives for people to behave and respond to in a certain way. And they responded in the way that I think, if we're honest, Ben, you and I both would have done the same. Um, if we were faced with you know economic imperatives to make money, we might not have managed to foresee the future. So we would have planted the bogs. And we would have taken advantage of the fact that the more sheep we had, the more money we got for families and so on. So it's a result of things like that that we see the Highlands as, as they are today. And then layered on top of that, you've got the, the sort of the sports shooting interest that was particularly singular in its focus. So if you manage for one crop in anything, whether you're a farmer doing oilseed rape or you're a sporting estate just targeting one species, then you will tend to, to get a certain result. And I guess the, the sort of what we're looking at it now and saying it is, well, all of these landscapes could be managed for a whole multitude of different benefits. It doesn't need to be for one. And in there then lies the, the questions about who decides what that landscape should look like, who decides what the right balance is of different species. So it, it's not easy. But yes, it could be far richer in terms of nature than what we see today. And a lot of the big changes that, that have taken place in terms of the natural fabric of the highlands took place a long time ago, you know, two, three, four hundred years ago. I mean, the, the, the Romans 2000 years ago wrote of the forest of Caledonia stretching pretty much from north to south, east to west. They used to catch up the, the Caledonian bears and the wild ox and take them to fight in the Colosseum, you know, a place of extraordinary natural vibrancy and place occupied by, by indigenous highlanders that lived in a, in, in a nominally Christian way, but in a way that was deeply intertwined with the natural fabric of, of their land. What, you know, what happened? Where, where did that forest go? 
It is interesting because I think that this the great wood of Caledon argument creates an impression in our minds of something that will be different to everybody. And certainly, like anybody else who wanders the Scottish Highlands, you'll see the, the stumps of pine trees coming out of the bogs and so on. But I think what's even more interesting is if you go to some other areas where the riverbanks have cut through deep peat, maybe two or three metres deep, you can see that those roots occur at different time periods. So you're looking through a history that's like 10,000 years old and you're seeing that there was pulses of forestry that came and went in different areas. So I think that's really important is to sort of say, yes, it was much richer. There was lots of different arguments as to why woodland was felled. One that I've been probing recently is just the, the kind of the, the Iron Age and just the need for fuel to smelt iron was massive. And if you look at where the smelters were on near water courses, you can just imagine the the massive impact that that had. So wood as a resource was required, whether it was for smelting iron or further on in time for supporting war efforts or whatever. And it takes a long time to re-establish itself. And if the environment's not right for it to re-establish, then slowly you're reducing your, your area of forest cover. No single event has led to the reduction in forestry. It's just been a accumulation of lots of different things happening that's removed the timber alongside increased grazing pressure that's prevented tree growth. And of course, the role played by the English who took a lot of the trees to make Navy ships more recently. And then the clearances. So, I mean, can we can we touch upon that dark chapter in Scotland's history and, and the role that played in the degradation of, of the environment as people were cleared from the land? Yeah, so, the, the, so in terms of the shipbuilding thing, the, and it's always difficult with these debates, I think. We'll be careful that we don't end up in a a Scotland-England type conversation because it's it's way more nuanced and complex. Scotland itself had a, a very prosperous shipbuilding industry in terms of the whole Arctic and Antarctic fleets that went down, ships like Discovery and so on, built in Dundee. But then the Highland clearances are interesting and most of your listeners will be aware that there's sort of two key schools of thought in terms of what drove the clearances. So one was this, this um, sort of post 1745 Jacobite rebellion period and to the victors of war go the spoils of war is if you like and the land then being carved up and then given out to people to be managed in a different way in the breakup of the Scottish clans and that's very much the the period of where the the residents of the highlands were done to and burned out with their houses in certain places like Strathnaver and so on but there's also another analysis that says that the lifestyle that people were leading at that time wasn't one that anybody would want to live today. Living conditions were poor. And therefore, there was a significant push factor in terms of immigration to seek a better future for themselves. And I'm not saying that either argument is right, but that I think there's enough evidence to say that both arguments were at play. But whatever the arguments were, that period in history had a fundamental change in Scotland's landscape. The land was then carved up it became under the, the single directorship, dictatorship, whatever you want, of, of a small group of people who could say, well, let's clear people off and how are we going to maximise our income? And the, the arrival of the sheep and sheep wool and so on was the first big driver. And that coincided with the, the Victorian sporting estate, you know, primarily in the Highlands for, for red deer. Yeah, of course. And, and deer numbers, for that reason, have exploded in Scotland, considered very high in some parts of the Highlands which makes it very hard for new trees to grow up, new scrub, and, and, and leaves us with 
quite a bare landscape and the trees that you do see are often geriatric trees with no young ones to replace them when they eventually die. I'm interested in the idea of keystone species. The beaver disappeared from the highlands of Scotland probably half a millennium ago, but there were still wild boar, there were still wolves as recently as two or 250 years ago. And of course, the indigenous highland people had native cattle, which is a native species and plays a keystone role in, in, in the engineering of mosaic wood pastures and so on. And, and I'm interested in the idea that, that as those keystones were removed, along with the people that lived in the Caledonian landscape, that, that a sort of ecosystem collapse was perpetuated. And therefore, I'm interested in what opportunities there are for rebuilding those ecosystems and also what opportunities there are for, for breathing new life into the economy and the society of these landscapes through the process of nature recovery. And that... That's a huge, huge question. Can I go? Can I just go before we go there? Can I just go back to the business about the point that you're making about the um, the vast open landscapes of the Highlands and how people perceive them? Because I would just like to acknowledge that you know, in terms of having lived there, they are stunning as they look today. And it's only it's only as a when you start looking at other places in the world and you realise that we don't have a natural tree line. And why is that? Why why is something so? Um, I don't know what it is, so ubiquitous, so common in, in the rest of Europe that when you come to Scotland, you don't see it. You're actually admiring something that is evidence of a damaged landscape. And the problem is that those changes have taken place incrementally over time. So it's like the, it's what's called the changing baseline syndrome, um, where we always regard that the landscapes of our youth are what it should look like, but we don't see what they look like historically. And I think that's really important when you get to that next thing about keystone species, because everybody aware that this IUCN talk about flora and fauna, and it's only recently that they start to talk about flora, fauna and funga. And the introduction of fungi is a whole new thing that we need to be thinking about that we hadn't thought about before, and it's huge impact in how ecosystems work. What it sort of flags up is that in the last five years, we've recognised that a third of the complexity, if you like, in really simple terms, of how ecosystems work has been totally ignored by us. And then we come to the question that you're asking there about apex predators and reintroducing things. We are, in effect, just tinkering with something that we know very little about because the, the ecological complexity and the interdependency between all those species is, yeah, sure, we've got some major things missing. And if we bring them back in, that will help sort of uh, undo or it might help undo some of the damages that have happened in the past. A sort of a simple example would be you say that right, you've got an area of land and it's overgrazed at the moment. So you want to reduce the grazing pressure to re-establish, um, as we spoke of earlier, this this woodland that was there in the past. As you reduce the grazing pressure, you sort of think, well, how many deer do we need to take off the ground to let the trees grow? And figures are quoted loosely. People will talk about you need less than five deer per square kilometre or three deer or whatever. But everybody wants to see deer, most iconic animal, largest you know, mammal. So we don't want to exterminate them. So we reduce the population slowly. And as we reduce the population slowly, the herbage and the grasses grow. So you then have a, another type of ecosystem that's not a grazed one. It's not covered in, in trees either. It's one where they've got very lush vegetation of different types, largely in lots of cases, millennia grass. And now what you've done is, in ecological terms, you've created a new state, a new steady state of millennia grassland. And it's not easy to establish trees into millennia grassland. 
Whereas if you reduce the deer grazing pressure very quickly, then as everybody will know, you can establish trees on mineral soils really quickly. That's what they love. But on millennia grassland, it's incredibly difficult. So you then say, well, how, how do you get through that ecological static state? And then you need something to stir the ground up. And stirring the ground up, obviously, is the wild boar, which has made a comeback in in big swathes of the Highland now. I saw a recent estimate that suggests there may be as many as three or 4,000 wild boar now in the west of Scotland. So, yeah, so wild boar, fantastic at scarifying ground, if that's your primary objective. Um, equally, you can introduce native breeds of cattle to do it. There's an estate up north where they had put in a large fence that retrospectively they wanted to take out. So they removed the fence with a bulldozer and created a big white scar on what was otherwise a heather, a heather hill. And today, what you see where that fence was formerly is a band of trees, simply because the mineral soils were exposed. It's the same grazing pressure either side. Either side of where this fence was removed is still heather, but where the mineral soils were exposed is now covered in pine trees. So that's the impact of scarifying. I'm not suggesting for a second that we use bulldozers to scarify the ground. But if you can expose mineral soils, it's got a huge impact on tree growth. I think in terms of the, it's just an example, as you were talking about, there's grazing pressure affect tree growth, but there's also the need to scarify the ground. And you need both in many situations, particularly if the grazing pressure has been reduced gradually. That's where the challenges get harder. You're listening to Rewilding the World with Ben Goldsmith, and this podcast is made possible by our new sponsors, Vivo Barefoot. I didn't necessarily have it in mind to partner up with a sponsor for these podcasts, unless it was going to be a company that I really admire, that really fascinates me. And Vivo Barefoot certainly falls into that category. I love my pair of Vivo Barefoot shoes. I wear them all the time. If you want to get a pair, there's a 15% discount if you use the code Vivo Rewilding 15 which is valid until the end of April. Now they say good companies don't have customers, they have fans. Well, I'm certainly a fan of Vivo Barefoot. So what does the John Muir Trust do? You've got a bunch of properties in different parts of the Highlands and the goal is presumably to restore functional ecosystems, which mostly means trees. You know, it means re-wetting if it's on peat, but mostly it means more trees. How do you achieve that? And can we talk about a little bit about the recent controversy where a lot of the neighbours and some of your properties say, well, we don't want to reduce deer numbers because our business model is to have very high numbers of deer so that tourists can come and shoot them with some degree of ease. So in terms of the John Muir Trust, it's a UK charity and it sort of aims to um, advocate for three freedoms, if you like. So freedom for nature, which is the phrase that I would prefer to the rewilding one, but that's just allowing as much freedom for ecosystems to work in the way that they would like. And then the other two freedoms are freedom for people to enjoy those assets and then freedom for communities to benefit from land that is managed for nature's freedom. So that's the first thing. And the next bit is to say, well, the whole of the UK is not uniform. And you get this concept of biogeographic zones. And we've divided the UK, working with information from DEFRA and from Nature Scott into, and they've done similar work in, in Wales and Northern Ireland, but just dividing it into natural biogeographic regions of which we've identified about 46. And then we're sort of saying, well, in each one of those areas where the ecosystems and the underlying geology and climate and so on, it's very different, would like to have 
one exemplary area where nature has most freedom and the land is managed for that freedom primarily. People get to enjoy it and communities round about get to benefit. So in Scotland at the moment, we've got, of the 46, we've got about eight zones that have properties in them and we're starting to manage um, very clearly for those objectives. So since I took on the job, we've been looking at our deer management, which is one of our biggest challenges. And we've divided the country into three regions. So in the north region, we've got sort of four key properties, one in Noidart, one in Skye, one at a place called Cunyag, just north of Ullapool, and one much further north at Sandwood. And we've done significant deer reductions on all our properties this year. And the one that's caused most controversy is the one at Cunyag. And Cunyag is surrounded by sporting estates that primarily are set up for the sport shooting of red deer, which is primarily stags. And to our north and to our eastern boundaries, we've got very big estates. And in a sense, the larger the estate is, the more able it is to adjust to the management actions of its neighbours. But to the west, we've got relatively smaller estates. And because we've owned the property for, for 15 years plus, there's become an implicit acceptance that the stags on which those estates see as their assets, they winter on our ground. And in wintering on our ground, they're causing damage to naturocytes, so just grazing damage, where the naturocytes themselves are not only unfavourable, but identified as being in a state of decline, which is quite serious if you're an environmental body. But it also means that nowhere on the estate can trees regenerate. And what the debate led to is a few things. So one is a sort of a, a challenge that trees can't grow there. But then what we sort of managed to show is, that, well, the trees are there. It's no matter where they well, they can. The trees are there just now. They're just being browsed. So if we reduce the browsing pressure, the trees will come out. And that's particularly the case on the northern slopes and on the south slope, um, less so on the on the west side. Um, so that's one of the challenges. And then uh, there's various other bits in the debate where it's change that's happened and there isn't anything in Scots law that suggests that we need to provide winter grazing for somebody else's sporting asset. If you want a sporting estate, then by all means have a sporting estate. If you don't want your deer escaping off your estate, by all means fence your deer in. And it's just kind of trying to work out where the balance of property rights sits between different parties. I think that the the Ascent Cunyag example has been particularly tense just because there's been a, a presumption in the past that the trust will accept the winter grazing of, of deer that others, some people perceive as a sporting asset, whereas for us, they're causing damage. And that's something that, as a trust, we're keen to draw a line under. So has the trust made a decision to reduce deer numbers enough that those trees can get away and the woodland can begin to re-establish? Completely. We're completely committed now in all our properties to uh, managing grazing pressures at levels that allow trees to grow. And I guess if, if the John Muir Trust isn't doing it, then how can you expect anyone else to do that? And of course, I, you know, more and more landowners are buying pieces of land in Scotland specifically for the purpose of re-establishing tree cover. It's becoming a, a serious trend across the highlands now. It is. But in there lies the next challenge, which is that it's the sort of the one that's driven by green finance and the carbon markets. And there's sort of two challenges there. One is that if you if you buy land and you plant it, you can sequester carbon and that's good for the environment. Or you can look at the carbon that's been lost from the land through degraded peat. 
and both of those are legitimate markets. But if you buy the land for the uh, sequestration of carbon and you look at the difference between the carbon sequestered through natural regeneration as distinct from the carbon sequestered from commercial crops or planted trees, that's chalk and cheese. So for a lot of these new owners, the economics will drive them into actually planting, whole-scale planting, to maximise the gain from carbon capture, which in terms of a natural process is questionable. Even if those landowners are planting native trees? So there you get into that, and it's all nuanced debate, is that, well, if you took a 300-year timeline, you could say that no matter where you plant trees today, the environment, grazing pressures and so on will sort out the right assemblage of, of tree species. But quite often planting trees leads to a, a far higher density of trees than you might expect in uh, a natural regenerating system. Certainly speeds it up. And there's no rights and wrongs in that space. There's the council of perfection, the sort of the purest ecological argument, which would say, no, just leave it alone. Let's have some areas in the UK where nature was allowed to do what it wanted, as opposed to man-induced nature, which is the planting nature trees, as it were, natural trees. Rewilding on steroids, I've heard it described as. Yeah, that's... Uh -huh. Yeah. And, and, and of course, in the far distant past, those trees would have regenerated at a certain density and there'd have been some very large megafauna that knocked them over. Um, yeah. you know, elephants, for example, in the Pleistocene and to some extent bison more recently than that. Mm -hmm. What about wildlife, David? What, what's, what's the John Muir Trust position on, for example, the restoration of beavers and the return of wild boar, which has happened somewhat accidentally? And also, what's the trust position on bringing back large carnivores? So, for example, the lynx to control deer numbers or the wolf or bears indeed. Yeah. So when I was working for Rewilding Britain, it was always quite entertaining to go into um, community halls and talk about reintroducing bears and so on. But at one level, the reintroduction of bears into the Scottish landscape, it just helps break the ice because culturally we are so far removed from living with bears and it's so challenging that people just relax. I think when you go to lynx and wolves, people think, well, actually, somebody's quite serious about that. And then the, what's interesting there is, and I think this is one of the challenges with the whole rewilding debate, for better or for worse, the rewilding word is kind of associated with a, a financially privileged group of people doing two communities rather than with. And the perception of Everybody wants to tick the community consultation box. So everybody does something in that space to say that they've done a bit of consultation. But actually, the community still feel that they're being done too. And that then creates a resistance, which then creates a polarisation, which means that it's quite difficult to have informed conversations. And uh, it is just about social cultural change. So if you take the links one, as an ecologist, I haven't seen or heard any argument from an ecological perspective that suggests that lynx couldn't survive. So then you say, well, why don't we just bring them back then? And it's because you get into this other space, which is about property rights. So if I was to, providing the planning laws allowed for it, to do something on my property, then that's one thing. But the minute you start doing something that affects somebody else's property right, that's much more challenging. So with, with beaver, for example, if you introduce beavers, you aren't controlling where the beavers have their economic impacts and some of those economic impacts could be detrimental to people and those that are going to be impacted by the detrimental economic impacts are saying is that fair 
was I properly consulted in this? Will there be adequate compensation? And to be honest, I think we're still in the very early stages of working out how to have those conversations in a way that feels unthreatening and fair for everybody. Because in terms of evolution, I don't think there's any species on the planet that evolved primarily to protect its ecosystem or its habitat. The selfish gene argument says we always just get what's best for us in terms of our reproductive potential. And if you look at that in a human context, you say, well, evolution hasn't designed the human species to protect the planet by intuitive behaviour. The only way we're going to protect the planet is through a very conscious effort to recognise that shifting baselines, as we spoke about earlier, all these natural resources and ecosystems are just being steadily depleted over and over. So at some point, we've got to start thinking about how do we, well, first of all, do we want to repair that damage? And just think first at a global level. And then you think, well, think globally, but act locally. We, we need to start putting some of that stuff back locally. Otherwise, we don't pass on anything great to our future generations. So I think in principle, there's not many people would argue against those needs. The challenge is how we go about doing it and the pace of change. And that's difficult. So if I had one, one cry to the people who want to introduce the apex predators, it would be, first of all, you need to recognise that it's not just about individual attitudes towards it. You've got government policies. And if government policies are, are pushing for people to manage livestock in rural areas, and then on another hand, you're introducing predators to eat the livestock that the public money is paying for, that does create a bit of a conflict scenario. And left hand needs to speak to right hand before doing things. Do, do you think there's a certain amount of navel gazing, though, on all of this because we're an island? I mean, every single continental European country now has wolves back. Links are back in pretty much every European country on the continent. Beavers are back across the continent. There are now nearly 20,000 brown bears in Europe. Spain alone has about 400 bears. And it just happened. You know, all four of those species more or less just returned of their own accord, spread back across the continent. Of course, they can't swim across the channel. And so as an island, we would have to proactively reintroduce them. Yeah. And do you think that's made us more zoophobic, more fearful? Is it more fearful? So there's certainly something in that argument. I, about 30 years ago, was involved in some of the very first discussions about the introductions of Breaver when I was working for Scottish Natural Heritage at the time. And the preliminary consultations that we did, the, the biggest fear that people were coming back with is that you can't have beaver because they'll eat salmon. And uh, for those that know that beaver don't eat salmon, it just seems a, a ludicrous position to adopt. But then if you look at it, you sort of think, well, if you've grown up, though, and you're culturally removed from those species, how, how would you know what a beaver eats? How would you know what a bear eats? How would you know that wolves are living in cities in, in Holland now or on the outskirts? How would you know that, that people are just accustomed and live very safely with those apex predators? And all it flags up is that our level of, I don't like the word ignorance, but our, our level of, of not knowing the reality of what it's like to live with those species that gap is so big. How you close it, I don't know. But there is something about realising that because we're an island, we're less aware of the ecology of some of these species. And therefore, we go back to Little Red Riding Hood and we create stories about what it would be like to live with wolves or um, horror stories about the exceptional event, the one in Spain recently where a bear you know, caused a fatality with a person. And those stories get amplified over and over. Whereas if you were to look at actual risk in terms of industry 
if you applied the same the same fear factor in terms of mortality and, and you know in terms of the agricultural sector alone is it's far more dangerous you know what I mean it's like the our perception of danger is really skewed towards what is culturally accepted against what culturally we don't know of course it's it's absolutely true that there's no documented case of a wolf killing a human being even if you look back into history i'm sure it's happened but it's it it hasn't been recorded out out with rabies i think i think there's there's been any wolf that's been involved in killing a human my understanding is it's been a rabies related incident as opposed to a a natural predator prey situation meanwhile some somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen people are killed by cows every year in yeah. in the uk and, and globally thirty thousand people are killed by domestic dogs worldwide every year a million by cars but we don't talk about yeah. getting rid of cows dogs and cars so they're, they're absolutely right the calibration in our minds around the risk of living with wildlife is skewed um exceptionally because we live on an island yeah. and the reality is likely to be far more benign on the positive side, places like the Cantabrian Mountains and Asturias in northern Spain, the Apennine Mountains of central Italy, a whole new economy has grown up around bear watching, wolf watching, bird watching, nature immersion, experiential holidays and so on. Is there a growing realisation in the highlands that this may present an opportunity for economic growth, for jobs and for a new way of life amid wild nature? Part of me would like to sort of say yes, but I think that would be naive. And I think I think it's more towards the new at the moment. I think there's a backlash saying that is that we're looking for real jobs, high quality jobs in these rural areas. And we're not sure we want to work in this sort of service industry of, of servicing tourism. And that's not to say that the model that you just outlined isn't worth one worth looking at. And I'd certainly support that. But I think it's not the only way. So one thing that we're looking at in terms of the, the property that we spoke about earlier up at Cunha Kyleskew, is the idea that people can live now in proximity to these areas and with post-COVID world of broadband and home working. You know, for example, it's almost like a case, Ben, you could work for a few months of the year in the Highlands and still do your job. I mean, I'm not making too many presumptions, but just working with really good internet. And equally on your doorstep, each day with your family, you could enjoy some of the world's most beautiful places. It's that living in these places, you don't need to have extractive industries. You don't need to be damaging the landscape or, or extracting minerals or, or resources out of the land itself. You can just enjoy it in lots of different ways and you can hold down a high-power job because the world's moving really quickly. And now we've got broadband and most companies will accept a high degree of home working. It's opening up masses of possibilities so we're exploring that with a recent purchase that we made where we bought it primarily to establish a visitor center to promote an understanding of the social cultural and natural history of the area particularly around the management of Kunyag and what it means to be freedom for nature um, but we're also thinking well we could alongside that have an enterprise hub an enterprise hub where local people can come in and hot desk we can have uh, childcare provided so that mothers who are um, of an age that have got children that are dependents can can still work, but knowing the children are close by and safely looked after. But that space can also be rented out to corporates to come and rent for two or three weeks at a time. And I sort of feel that the ways of, of creating long-term sustainability around the management of these places 
and the economic sustainability, we're still just in the early stages of that. And there's lots of novel ways to, to make it work. But undoubtedly, the perception change is underway. Places like Carifran and the Devil's Beef Tub and the, the huge estate at Glenfeshi belonging to Wildland, Scotland, they're like Technicolor as compared with the black and white of the surrounding landscape. And once you've been into one of those places and you've seen the wildflowers and you've heard the bird song and you've seen the little Caledonian pines and the rowans and the goat willows dotted all the way up to the tops of the hills, you can't unsee it because it's very hard for people to say that the landscape should be bare when these landscapes are no longer bare. And I feel that this perception change is going to be more powerful than anything. And, and that's why I particularly love the work of the John Muir Trust in, in highlighting how beautiful these landscapes are when they're undergoing restoration. And the work you do getting young people out of the cities and so on and out onto your estate so they can sit and have positive experiences in nature. I think that's all vital I think it is. I had a, a reminder of my youth recently. I went out to help a, a crofter just catch the lambs. More, not because I'm good at catching lambs, but more just because we could spend the afternoon together. And in that process, we passed different areas in his croft, which is a tiny area of ground, but his intimate knowledge of everything just came through in terms of the cultural history. So there was a well where he used to go and collect water when he was young, before water was piped into houses. There was a steel rim which signified the, the steel rim that goes in a cartwheel. And he can remember the transition from the carts and horses to the arrival of the Massey Ferries and tractors. And if we went further around the coast, we would see the, the brochs from the, the sort of the you know, 4,000 years ago, or we'd see standing stones or whatever. So I think it's, it's absolutely vital that we take people in these rural areas with us and that we respect the social culture that's been there. It doesn't have to remain that way. But it's, we're certainly not turning our back on it. And it's about achieving change with respect and dignity for, for all parties. I think that's the key. David, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, what's happening up in Scotland and the Highlands, the work that John Muir Trust and others are doing really is incredibly exciting. It's a place of, I think, enormous optimism and hope. And I try to get there as much as I possibly can. There's a growing clamour in Scotland and especially in the Highlands for a shift in emphasis in the way the land is managed towards the recovery of nature and the great Caledonian forest. The politicians seem to be catching up. Could Scotland be the next rewilding nation following in the footsteps of the likes of Costa Rica and Bhutan? I think it's going to happen and it'll happen in part because of people like David and the John Muir Trust. I feel very lucky to have spent this time chatting to David. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did making it. Please do use whatever platform in which you get your podcast to leave us a review, spread the word, share these amongst your friends. It all makes a big difference. And with special thanks to Vivo Barefoot for sponsoring and making this podcast possible. Don't forget, you can change your life by buying yourself a pair of Vivo Barefoot shoes with a 15% discount using the code VivoRewilding15. And there's a load more information in the show notes. Next time, I'm going to be talking to Tim Allard in Western Australia. Tim leads maybe the largest rewilding organization that I've spoken to yet, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, which is stewarding more than 6 million hectares across Australia, working with very large landowners. They bought land, they're tackling invasive species, working with indigenous communities and wildfire, reintroducing long lost species. And the story is just 
staggering in its scale and ambition. I do hope you'll join me for my conversation with Tim.